2 Timothy chapter 3, Lord willing, this is our, our last stop along our introduction of prophecy as we've taken our little interlude between Revelation 3 and Revelation 4. And uh, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we see the outline that we've been using, and that is the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that will be. And uh, we are currently looking at the things that will be and taking our interlude. And so we've looked at the nature of prophecy and, um, as we've gone through that. And then the conveyance of prophecy, which has been a multiple week um, step as we've gone through that. Looking at the, the covenants and the feast, the prophecy via Daniel. We took three weeks for that. Then we looked at the conveyance of prophecy via other prophets. And that was specifically, we looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then the following week, we looked at Ezekiel, Hosea, and Zechariah. Last week, we looked at uh, the prophecy, uh, conveyance of prophecy via Jesus. And then again, Lord willing, today, um, we will consider the prophecy the, via Paul. Okay? And so, um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're, we're going to wind up beginning. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see Paul record signs of the last days. Now, as we go through these passages... Um, as we look at 2 Timothy 3, we're going to look at signs of the last days, but as we're going to see in Timothy, throughout all the other passages we're going to look at, that um, Paul, Paul has had the privilege of sharing the mystery um, to the church, of the church, to the world. And um, in all the other passages we're going to look at, they're going to deal with the mystery. This one hasn't have to do with the mystery, this one has to do with just an overview of what the end times are going to look at, look like, and what the people, the the um, the the people are going to act like, what 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 they're going to be like, and then we as believers, how we're supposed to respond to all these things. And so, beginning in Second Timothy chapter three, we want to read the first five verses. We can actually read the entire um, chapter, but we'll look at just the first five verses of chapter three, and then the last couple verses as well. So, beginning in verse one, we read, "But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come." For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such people turn away. And so as Paul goes on in these first five verses, he gives us some attributes of the people who are going to be living in these last days. And we see, first of all, that perilous times are going to come. And it's going to be, I think, perilous times, not just because of what we, we saw last week in what Jesus declared and how there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and, and, famines, and famines and pestilence and stuff like that. But I think these attributes that we're going to see are really going to be probably some of the cause of the wars and the rumors of wars and some of these other things that that go on. And so what do we see of these attributes of these people? Well, first of all, they're going to be lovers of themselves and of money. Now, what does it mean to be a lover of yourself? Anybody quickly? Go ahead, Andrew. What does it mean? You love yourself better than anyone else. That's exactly right. And we'll see that how that Paul's going to actually end with the same concept um, when we get down to the, to the end here, but he starts off with it and he ends with it, and that is that men are going to love themselves. I'm numero uno, and think about 
as we go through these, think about our culture today. Okay? Think about our world, and specifically the United States and where we live. And just ask yourself, does this describe the people as a whole, the landscape of people in our culture today? You know, you look out for what? Number one, because nobody else is going to look out for them. It's just an amazing thing. We're going to be lovers of ourselves and of money. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 6. He says you can't serve God and mammon. And again, mammon is not money, but it's a thing that money buys. And we know that it's the love of money that is the root of many evils. It's not money itself. It's the, the love of money. So always remember that distinction. Money by, money by itself is not evil. It's the love of the money that becomes evil. But in the end times, people are going to be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Secondly, we see that the people are going to be boastful and prideful. Now, it makes sense that if you're a lover of yourself, that what's going to kind of start to be characteristic of you? You're going to talk about yourself all the time. And so you're going to be boastful. You're going to be talking about yourself and, and all the things that are about you and, and, and the pride that's there. It's going to be an amazing thing. Also then, coming off of that, people are going to be disrespectful toward God, parents, generosity, and sacred things. Now you say, wow, how does all that apply? Again, though, think about it. If I love myself, and I'm all about me and about trying to, to get as much of the world as I can through the money, okay, then the reality is that I really don't care about who. I don't care about God. I don't care about parents. Okay, we'll put those two together for a moment. Why? Generally speaking, okay, think, think about, nothing personal, teenagers. There are people who want to control you. Okay, that's exactly right. There are people who, who potentially have opinions that are different than yours. There are ones who like to restrain you. There are ones who, who, who you know, don't want you to have as much as you could, to, to have as much fun as you can. Oh, Mom, ah, oh, Dad, get with it. You don't know what it's like today. Mom, Dad, how many times have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have as many, enough fingers, do you, Rodney? Anyways. It's amazing, but you know what, I, if, I, if my mom and dad were here, it would be interesting to ask my mom and dad how many times they heard that. You know, but the fact is that as we come into the end times, these things are become more and more prevalent. They're going to be disrespectful to God, to parents, toward the unthankfulness, the unthankfulness is being not thankful toward those who do good things for you. Now we know in Romans chapter 1 that people are going to be unthankful to who? To God. But you know what? That unthankful spirit bleeds on down into everything else. Instead of us being thankful for the things that people do for us, rather we're, we're going to focus on what? What they didn't do. Does that make sense? It's not a matter of how much God has blessed you. It's really a matter of how much He hasn't given you. Not that you need, but that you want. Harry has one. Why don't I? Martha, she, I mean, she gets to go there all the time. I have been able to go there once. And so rather than being grateful and thankful for what I do have, I'm going to become unthankful for what I don't have. And that in and of itself is a disrespect as well. Because I'm disrespecting the person who has blessed me with what I do have. Does that make sense? 
Kids, how many times have you disdained the food that your mother has graciously put on the table? Think about it. To your mom and to your dad, you've said, I don't care how much you've worked to provide that food. I don't care what you've done to prepare that food. I don't care that I'm actually having something to eat beyond what many children around the world are eating. What I'm upset about is, I don't have my chicken fingers and macaroni and cheese. Mom and dad, next time it happens, you know what you can do? Instead of going out and getting the McDonald's cheeseburger, just tell them, you don't have to eat it then. I mean, think about it. That's what God does for us. If you, don't, if, you, if you want to despise the blessings that he gives you, it's okay. You can despise it. He just does what? Stops the blessings from coming. If you don't want it, Romans chapter 1, you can go back and look at it and check me out. But neither were they thankful. When we, when we turn, turn over and we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator, God says, fine, you go handle it on your own. If you don't like my provision for you, you provide for yourself. And find out what you do. I believe the United States found that out right after the 20s when we decided um, officially that as a nation we don't believe in the creator God anymore, but that we believe in the God of evolution. And God handed us over, and right on the heels of that decision was the Great Depression. Right on the heels of the Great Depression was all the, uh, the New Deal plans and everything else that came out of it. On the heels of that is is us taking ourselves off the gold standard because we want more and more and more. On the heels of that is our what? Trillions of dollars of debt. It's amazing how, what we can do when we handle it ourselves, right? Great lifestyle. I mean, we can do everything. We got it all. What happens when the chips are called in? Anyways, so they'll be unthankful. They'll be disrespectful to, to those of, who give them generosity, and they'll be dis- disrespectful to sacred things. The word there for unholy is not the word for hagios, which is the word holy, which is God is holy, but rather is the word for referring to sacred things, to, to things that are sacred. And I see this so much. Now, again, I am not one to, to loft this facility. This is a, a building. It's made with bricks. has drywall in it, and we have carpet. And it is a facility that we are renting for the purpose. However, this is a facility that is for sacred use. Think about it. We have chosen to take God's money and to spend it on this facility to use for serving God, not for serving us. I hope that doesn't take you by surprise. Okay? But it's a mindset. <clears throat> in our mindset today, we think as, as a whole in our society that everything is all about me. And so therefore, if we've rented this facility, it's all about me and what this facility can do for me rather than what this facility can do for God. I challenge you to look scripturally. Anytime you you present an offering or do something on behalf of God, that thing is considered to be sacred or holy, set apart unto God. And I believe that we ought to treat those things as special. I We can become legalistic and I don't want to become legalistic. Okay, But I want to challenge you in your thought process that have you, have I, have we succumb to the thought processes of this world regarding the, the complacency that we have with, with God and with the, um, the familiarity with God rather than treating the things of God and the sacred things with the respect that they rightfully deserve. Okay? And so we're told that in the end times people are going to be disrespectful toward sacred things. Okay? 
And so I just want you to challenge that, ask, ask the Lord that yourself, and just ask yourself, am I placing a, an importance upon these things? Next we see that people are going to be without a basic affection or forgiveness toward others. The basic affection, when it says unloving, the word here is the word stereotype, which is a, a form of love that we don't really talk about usually. Usually we talk about the word eros and phileo and agapao. Well, there is another word for, um, for love in the Greek, but it just refers to just a natural love. It's just a love that is naturally out there that you just you have for people. I mean, it's just a normal, um, it's almost like a, a family kind of love. You're in a family, so therefore you what? You love somebody. It's, it's not something that you're cognitively thinking about. It's just, it's there. You care about people. And so what this says, and it's only used twice, it's really amazing, um, it's only used twice in, the, in all of the New Testament, both in this form, the un, unloving, the having no, no basic affection. And so in the end times we're told that people are just not going to care about others. I mean, it's going to be all about themselves. And then unforgiving, okay, that the idea here is in, the, in the, um, King James, I think the word is truce breakers that it uses. And the idea is that they're not willing to forgive. They're not willing for reconciliation. They're going to hold the grudge. I don't get mad. I get even. They hold the grudge. They're not willing to forgive others. Rather, rather than being loving and caring about others, and rather than worrying about keeping a relationship with others, they will be ones who accuse others. And the word here is the word diabolical. Diabolical. It's a Greek word, actually. Isn't that amazing? And it's actually diabolos, which is the word that we use for the devil, or for Satan. That's where that word comes from. And Satan is the slanderer, or the accuser, of the brethren. And so, in these last days, people will be noted as being accusers of others. They will be slanderers, and that's what the word means. They will be accusing people without having what? All the facts. And without the right motivation. We're told that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. Our desire, when we bring these, these accusations and we bring these judgments toward others, is for what purpose? Reconciliation, restoration, repentance, okay? Seeing people being restored into the perfect relationship with Jesus Christ and with the church. These individuals in the last days, that's not their motivation. That's not their desire. Rather than the motivation the desire is to put somebody else down, that it may what? Lift them up. That's exactly right. Note, again, all these, how all these go back to, they'll be lovers of themselves. Okay? It's all about me. It's all about me. Again, they will be people who have a lack of self-control, a lack of tameness, a lack of regard for what is good, and a lack of loyalty. They will be without these things, and so they won't have self-control. I mean, basically, the concept there is that if it feels good, I'm going to... I'm going to do it. It's all about me. Brutal is the word there, is um, the word for not tame. They're not tame. Okay? When you think of something that is tame, how would you describe it? Gentle. Gentle. How about trained? I think of the word trained. 
Because something can be, you've got pit bulls, okay? And I'm fearful every time I walk in your house that I may get torn apart to pieces, right? No. Why? Because Josema is what? She's a big baby. But you've also sought to what? Train her so that she would be tamed. Does anybody know the difference between meekness and weakness? That's right. Meekness is, is having strength under control. Okay? It's not weakness. Tameness is the same concept. Tameness is, is not weakness. Tameness has power, but it's under, under a control. These people, these brutal people, are ones, put it together with this self-control, without lack of self-control, they're not tamed. They're not trained. They're not disciplined. Think about many of the kids in our culture today. Think of some of the things that go on in our culture, and we wonder, how could that atrocity have been portrayed? It's because they're not tamed. It goes against the thought process of the world, but children are not born inherently good. Rather, children are born inherently sinners and self-seeking and self-pleasing. And without being tamed, if you would, or trained, they will become wild. Think about it. A domesticated dog left in the wild will ultimately become wild. Say again? Or it'll die. That's exactly right. But if you take a dog that could be domesticated, could be trained, beautiful dog, in all the dog shows, we could watch them on TV, and, or you put it out in the wild. That's exactly right. It, it'll become a wild dog. has to become a wild dog. That's where packs, when we're out hunting deer, I see wild dogs. They don't look like coyotes and wolves. They look more like pugs and... and um, Retrievers and, and other dogs that have been just what? Put out. But to me, they're a wild dog. It's the same thing. So in these last days, they're going to be without self-control. They're going to have a lack of tameness. They're going to have a lack of regard for what is good. They're going to be despisers of... And this is really awesome, this word for good here, is really the word for lovers of good. The lovers of things that are good. Philo agathos. Philo is phileo, okay, the, the love, okay. And agathos is good. And so the, the Greek word here is philo agathos. And it means the ones who love the things that are good. And so these people are going to have no regard. They're going to have a lack of regard for anything that is good. Or anyone that is good. Or anyone that desires the things that are good. So anytime in in this day that is coming, or that we might be in, when you desire the things that are good, these people are going to what? They're going to hate you. And we're told in the Bible, in those days, they're going to call what is good, evil, and what is evil, good. Now, what's good? Somebody define what good is. God is good. Okay, that's the ultimate definition. But bringing down into us, that how do we define things that are good? If God said so, right? I mean, what are right, what's righteousness? Righteousness is that which God declares to be right. 
Well, good is that which God is supposed to be good. So we need to understand good and evil because now that we got rid of, in our culture today, now that we've gotten rid of our absolutes and everything is relative, now good is a matter of how it means what it feels to me, right? And so it may be good to you, but it's not to me. You may think that's evil. You may think homosexuality is evil, but I don't think so because I was made this way. God made me this way. I was born this way. And so therefore, I know that anything that God makes is good. And so therefore, my homosexuality is good. Now, you, you, I shake your head. That's exactly right. Now, for the tape purposes, I'm not saying that I believe that. <laughs> Anyways, Maine became the fifth state this past Wednesday to, to legalize homosexual marriages. That's one-tenth. One-tenth of our nation has already condoned <clears throat> what God says is evil. We have got to be awake. We have got to be alert. Not be those who are asleep, but rather to keep our eyes open. They will also be ones who lack loyalty. They'll be traitors. <clears throat> Ultimately, good, Steve. How does the Bible define ethics? It doesn't necessarily define ethics, but ethics is defined by what you believe. Okay? And so th think about it. When we talk about ethics, really my ethics should be defined by my biblical understanding, by what God teaches in His Word. Does that make sense? And so ethics as a whole, throw it out. Okay? As a, as a term, I don't have a problem with it, but we've used it, in a sense, as a term to get rid of biblical understanding. Because now we, we talk about ethics, which really refer to what I believe, rather than what morality and righteousness is, which is regarding what God believes. Does that make sense? But if we refer to ethics, whenever somebody talks about ethics, always taken back to the original standard of what ethics are, and that is God's laws. Okay? <clears throat> Um, traitors. What is the, the really the roots of anybody becoming a traitor? Say it again. Tell me, what's the first word you said? Gain. Gain for themselves. That's exactly, they're, they're covering themselves here. Okay? Whether it's because they got an offer for money or prestige to, to, to turn coat, or whether it's, I'm going to die if I don't which is still gain, right? So either way, it's all about me. I didn't become a traitor because I cared about everybody else. I became a traitor because I was thinking only about me. Okay? And so, think about in relationships. I don't think that this is talking about national traitors, which it could be as well. I think it's talking about relationships as a whole. People who will become traitorous in their relationships, whether it's um, your relationships with your spouse, relationships with your parents or your children, relationships at work. It really frustrates me. I grew up in a day when there was loyalty between the employer and the employee, the employee and the employer. I, as a grown-up, I'm living in a day when that's out the window. I want to challenge you, employees and employers, you have the opportunity either way. 
do not be traitorous in your relationship with your employee and employer. Don't take. Just because it's the way the world operates, it doesn't mean it's the way we need to operate. We still rise above the way the world operates. It says that people are going to be headstrong or stubborn and have a superiority complex. Again, these all go back to lovers of self, doesn't it? Isn't it amazing? Why are most people stubborn or headstrong? They want their way. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? My way must be the right way. And even if it's not, I still want it. Superiority complex. What does that mean? I'm better than you are. And that's the idea of the haughtiness. The haughty spirit is the one that says, I'm better than you. I look down upon you. Finally, we come back into that, that lovers of self again. They're lovers of sensual pleasures. And it's not just pleasures, but the word here is for sensual pleasures. The lovers of sensual pleasures rather than lovers of, of God. And again, it comes back to this sensual pleasures is all about me. What pleases me. It's all about me. If it sounds good, smells good, looks good, tastes good, feels good, it's all it's all good. Isn't that what they would say today? It's all good. Do it. It's all good. Do it. It's all good. It's not all good. It's not all good. We have got to be careful. Listen, the jingles, jingles, the, the jingles in, in the, in the uh, what's the other ad word there? The slogans and all that kind of stuff that they throw out at us and you hear it over and over and over. Just do it. Let me, isn't it amazing? I mean, you, I mean, how many of those things we can fly out to? And whether you understand it or not, whether you really comprehend it or not, those things are being embedded in your mind. And there's a war that's going on for the way you think. And you have got to consciously seek to be involved in that war. And in the, in the world wants you to be a lover of sensual pleasure. It's all about that. It's all about, I mean, it's amazing how many times on the internet just a picture will pop up. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be totally um, pornographic. But most of you know that you'll fill in the gaps. All it's got to do is tantalize any part of the, the sensual process. And it gets the mind to wandering. And that's what it's all about. That's what every ad on the TV is about. They're not putting it on because they care about you. They're putting the ad on there because they want you to spend your money or be involved in their product. Secondly, the second side of this, and the signs of the last days, we're told about the, the attitude that we as believers should have. And so beginning in verse 13, we read, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we're told two things here. First of all, that we're supposed to do. First of all, we're supposed to turn away from impostors. If there's somebody out there who is not right, you look at the theology, and it's not right. Don't be a follower of them. 
It's amazing to me how many believers I see following imposters. While they're doing these nice things, these good things, I don't care if they're not true, if they're a fake, they're a fake. It's a done deal. Secondly, in order to combat not following after evil men and imposters, I need to do what? Continue in the things in which I have learned. Continue in that which is true. Continue in the scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Now again, the word salvation doesn't always have to necessarily mean eternal salvation, eternal redemption. The word salvation means deliverance. And I am being delivered every day. Not that I'm losing my salvation, I'm gaining my salvation again. But the fact is, that if I want to be delivered, if I want to have my feet pulled out of that miry clay, Psalm 40, what we're working on for our memory verse, right? What do I need to do? I need to be in the Word. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to your Word. If I want to be able to withstand in the evil day, which is the days that I think that we're living in, then I've got to be in the Word. And if I'm not, I'm a sitting duck. And I will be taken captive. Now, that's all on the signs of the last days. We want to talk about the revelation of the mystery, which is the next thing. And within the revelation of the mystery, there is two parts in this revelation. There is the foundation of the church, and then there is the resurrection of the church. First of all, in the foundation of the church, we see in Romans chapter 11, the setting aside of Israel. So turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. Now, understand that we're jumping right in the middle of a huge context um, regarding God setting aside Israel um, for, the, for the salvation of the Gentiles. But I'm, I'm trying to, for time... We're, we're jumping into the middle of this, and this is a section that really we talk about. Beginning in verse um, 25, we read, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own eyes, or wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness, remember that word, fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts in the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you once were disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of Yahweh? Who has become his counselor? And who was first given to him, and shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, what do we see here? First of all, we see the, the setting aside of Israel. Okay? We see, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions, 
that blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, in this concept, though, Ephesians chapter 3, turn there with me, we talk about this mystery about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, and this, um, and that Paul declaring this mystery, we read this mystery again in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. Though Paul isn't referring in Ephesians 3 to the end times, he is referring to this mystery that's being played out until the end times. Beginning at verse 1, Ephesians 3, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed that you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And what's this mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so, we read in Ephesians chapter 3 that the Gentiles should be joint heirs. And that is the mystery. The mystery is the church. The mystery that Paul was told about is that, that Israel was going to be set aside for a period of time. And that God was going, to want, was going to begin to deal with the Gentiles. And that blindness was going to come upon the Israelites, upon the Jews, in order that the Gentiles would be saved. But, cyclical processing here, that the salvation was going to come to the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous. So that they would once again desire the Lord God. And you have to read Romans 9, 10, 11 and understand the whole context. I don't think Romans 9 is all about the, the, um, um, the predestination that people talk about, it's all about Israel and the setting aside of Israel. It's not about individuals. And so read 9, 10, 11, 12, all in context together. And what, Paul, what God is saying through Paul is that he is going to, just as he chose Israel and worked through Israel, so he's going to set Israel aside for a period of time. And just as though Israel said, wow, that's really awesome. We liked it when you chose Jacob over the Esau. He says, you don't like it now, do you? He says, but it's my prerogative to do that. It's my prerogative because you have rejected me to set you aside and open up the gospel to the Gentiles. And so now this mystery is being unfolded and that, that the Jews didn't fully understand, but was there. It was there. It was just a mystery. Steve? That's right. Isn't jealousy a sin, so you Jealousy by itself depends on the object of your jealousy. If I come and I start hugging all over um, Melanie, okay, and Melanie's, re Melanie's reciprocating, is your jealousy righteous or not? No, it is. If I'm hugging on your wife and she's hugging back at me, buddy, you ought to deck me, okay? 
myself a lot of trouble. All right. That's how a lot of churches get themselves in trouble. Seriously, it is. You know, pastor wouldn't do that. You know? So get, take it away from me. Bring it to somebody you don't know. The fact is, I don't have a problem with a little hug with my wife and a shake of the hands with my wife. That's all good and well. But if you come up and you are hugging my wife and, and putting a hand where it doesn't belong or putting your lips where they don't belong, got it? I mean, you and me, you may be bigger than I am, but I'm better than you are, and we're dealing with each other, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, now that's a righteous jealousy, and God has that jealousy over us, because we belong to Him. But now, if, if I come back and I'm just talking to her, and you get jealous, you got an issue, okay? you got a, you got a security problem here. But, but yeah, so there is a, so God is bringing a righteous jealousy because Israel is His betrothed. She belongs to him. But she's been out playing the harlot, giving herself to other, and God says, fine, guess what? I'm going I'm to expand the bride here, and I'm going to open up the gospel to the Gentiles. And now the Jews are supposed to say what? Wait a second. You're our God. But rather, what have they done? They've rejected Messiah. But we know, and we'll see this again, we've looked at the through the prophets, and we'll see it again when we come to Revelation, that one day is, and we're going to see this actually in a moment here, that all Israel will be saved. That they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will, um, and they will turn to him. In fact, so we talk about the salvation of Israel, because they will respond to that, and so we see that all Israel will be saved. And what's interesting here, in Romans chapter 11, verse 24, we just read this, is after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the word is pleroma ton ethnon. It's the completeness of the ethnicities, of the nations, okay? When the completeness of the nations come in, when those who are saved come in, and the word pleroma then is the idea of that cup. Remember, we talked about this in the past, where fluids were being poured in? And no more fluid can pour in, okay? When that happens, then all Israel is going to save, be saved, okay? We read that, or talked about that last week, when we talked about Jesus, and we read Luke 21. Do you remember hearing it? And it talked about until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That these days, this generation is going to continue on until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. I believe, and that's the, the Pleroma Thyssen, Kroi Ethnon, I think it's the same timing. I think Jesus knew about this time, clearly he knew, about this time of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, and he was talking about that even then in his end time speaking. And that, listen, there's going to be this gap. There's going to be this mystery period that you don't, know, you don't know about. It's going to be the age of the Gentiles. We call it the age of grace. The age of the church. The Bible refers to it as the age of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then God's plan is going to revert back to Israel. Okay? This is so important, so key. When we get to Revelation chapter 10, you can look ahead, okay? And you can look at it and know that it's coming. Very clearly, Jesus comes back in the clouds and says, the mystery is now complete. It's fulfilled. It's perfected. It's matured. 
Okay? So the salvation of Israel is going to come on the heels of this. That's the foundation of the church. Now we look at the resurrection of the church. We have three passages that we want to look at quickly through here because of time. But 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then 2 Thessalonians 2, which we read this morning in our scripture reading. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? A passage that probably most of you are very familiar with. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, where we read, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. And so we're told right off the bat that there's going to be this trumpet. And we're told that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So when is the, the taking up of the church going to occur? At the last trumpet. Now this is important, okay? And again, we'll talk about this as we get to the book of Revelation. Many people want to explain this away and make it a different trumpet than what it is. Okay? But very clearly, we're told, and all we're doing is accepting this at this moment. Remember, these are factoids. These are data points that as we've been going through prophecy, we've been understanding and applying so that when we get the revelation, we fully understand it, rather than interpreting revelation the way we want to. Okay? Be careful of that. Be careful of interpreting the scripture the way you've always heard it and the way you want to. Interpret it according to scripture. We compare spiritual things with spiritual things. And so, we're told that this moment, this is going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. In the transformation, it's going to happen that those who are dead are going to come first, and then those who are alive will join them. Okay? Let's move on to 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at, down at verse 13. <coughs> it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall all be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or sleep, we shall live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are doing. Now, before we get into this, ultimately, these words of the return of Christ should be words of what to us? 
comfort. That's exactly right. We, whatever goes on in the world, we should be excited because we know what the end's going to hold, right? And so we're told, first of all, the order of the rapture. <clears throat> What's the order of the rapture? Well, the dead will be raised first, then we who are alive will meet them in the air. Now, I received a question last week during the, the question and answer time from Christopher. Christopher, do you remember what your question was last week? So we're, if, if, the, if, if to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, then we're out of the dead raised, right? And so the fact is, in the scriptures, we know <clears throat> that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When I leave, when I die, it is to me great gain because I do what? Instantly. I go to be in the presence of God. So, if that's the case, and we just read here, that when Christ comes back, that the dead will be raised first, how are they raised first? If they're already with them in the air. <coughs> it's a pretty simple answer, if you think about it. Physically. At that time, when I go there, what is raised? When I die... When I am separated from my body, remember, back to the illustration, Christopher, you remember this illustration, you know this, right? Can you see me? No, that's exactly right. Good, you got it. Other, some of you haven't heard this before, you're saying what? Anyways, that's exactly right. You can't see me. You see what I live in, but you don't see me. You cut off my arms, you cut off my legs, you burn my body. If I'm still existing, the fact is, I'm still me. So I am not exactly what you see I am what lives inside here. And one day, I will be removed from this tent, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And on that day that my, my tent falls, it may fall before I'm done even preaching. There have, been, there have been preachers who die in the middle of their messages. And I could die in the middle of my message. Would I be dead? No, I wouldn't be dead. I would still be alive. That's exactly right. It's just that my shell is going to be laying here in front of you. And you're all going to be going, ah! You know? And I'm going to be going, yes! Isn't it amazing the difference when, when somebody dies? The believer's in glory and, and everybody who acts is going, oh, you know. But, so, how are the dead raised? Well, at that point, we're told that our corruptible is given a what? An incorruptible body. At that moment, these bodiless souls, spirits, if you would, go figure that one. Never been there, so I can't explain that part of it. So don't ask me what do they look like. I don't know. Okay? They are joined with this glorified body. And we all join together. There is going to be the meeting in the air in the sweet by and by. It's going to be an awesome thing. We're all going to be getting these glorified bodies and we're not going to have to worry about sin. Amanda? If the dead are going to get a glorified body at that moment, what is the point in raising the corruptible body? You're assuming that the, the corruptible body is being raised. But the physical, but the physical is the is the glorified now. They're going to be given this glorified body at that moment. The spirit is already there. They're brought together. They're given a glorified body. But if the glorified body is going to be different, then why is it that they're going to be? I don't know. I also have a question. I, I, I don't I don't know that Amanda. Why 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 are they why why are they kept? Like in the Book of Revelation, we're going to see that the souls are underneath the throne, and they're crying out, "How long, O God, holy and true?" We're in the presence of the Lord. Okay, we will be in the presence of the Lord. But not necessarily are you given a glorified body at that time. But it doesn't also, it doesn't necessarily give us a timeline. Like he says, right. to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that right away, because if you look at the Old Testament, when Saul went to the witch and he raised up um, Samuel, Samuel, he said, why did you wake me? What was the point of him? That was a lie. There are those who lying if he was already awake up there. There, there are those who believe in soul sleep. Okay, um, prior to, and that's an Old Testament passage. Okay, prior to Jesus coming. Okay, when Jesus talks about um, death, where does he refer to in death? Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom and Sheol. Sheol. Well, not Sheol. That's the place of death, but the place of um, torment. There's a place of torment and a place of paradise. And so even then, people, there was this holding place, if you would, okay, that people were in this place of paradise and a place of um, torment. And then when they are finally resurrected in that last day, they will go to heaven or they will go to their final destruction. Okay? But as believers, we are told that it is different for us and that being under the blood of Jesus Christ, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that we go right now. And so, I, I can't say that I've got all the answers. Okay? I don't believe in a soul sleep. I don't believe in, in, in a holding place. I don't believe in purgatory. Which is um, where the, um, the Catholic Church would take that as well. Um, but rather that when I die, I go to be in the presence of, of the Lord at that moment. As a spirit being. Now when I get that, that physical body... It sounds to me like it happens at the rapture of the church, the resurrection. Now, off record, this isn't on the tape, pretend. Anyways, um, the reality is that in my own mathematical mind, okay, the quantum physics side of me that likes to the play with the theory of relativity and, and, it, it, and that the reality is that there is part of me that believes that I'll, re I'll get there the same time as David. Okay? And that the concept of time that we have here on the earth is different than the concept of time once I leave the earth in the spiritual realm. Does that make sense? And so that, that actually it's all happening at the same moment. And so, but, but from my perspective, and that's what I'm preaching on right now, okay, the reality is it's not happening until the rapture when my body is united. Now, if I'm right on the theory of relativity and the time, quantum physics and the time and all that kind of stuff, then that kind of makes sense. Does that make sense? But I'm not one, and I'm not going to preach that as saying that this is true. Okay, that's just that's Bob's musings, and 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 I love to just kind of look at that kind of stuff. And I think there's more outside of our concept of reality than we fully understand. And we think this is real, but this isn't real. You know, ultimate reality is after I die and I'm in the presence of God, and that's what ultimate reality is. And so I think we'll see all that. And people say, but that doesn't make sense. We're in time. I said, yes. What happened before Genesis 1:1 though? At Genesis 1-1, God created time. He created time, space, and matter. Everything that you understand, and he created it for us. But before that, there was God. So God lives outside the realm of time, space, and matter. And that blows my brain. I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I can blow a socket pretty quick on that one. And, uh, because God is what? Spirit. Therefore, when I get into the spiritual realm, theoretically, I'm outside of the realm of time, space, and matter. Woohoo! All right. Oh, the computer guy. All right, here we go. <laughs> Good, Nate. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about the, I think it's in Revelation, the saints of heaven are crying out to the Lord. That's what I'm saying. They're impatient. They're saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That's right. Right. They're, so they're, they're in heaven, right? They're in heaven. 
And, and those, are, those are ones that are theoretically <clears throat> during the tribulation period. We'll talk about that a little bit more then. But that's exactly right. There are saints that were underneath the, 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 the altar of God crying out for vengeance. And uh, are those Old Testament saints? Are they New Testament saints? Are they saints that are in the, the tribulation period? I'm just wetting your whistle. Um, you'll have to, I know you'll be gone, so you'll have to listen. <laughs> Tape delay. Anyways, um, for whatever my meanderings will be at that moment. But, yes, the fact is that there are those that are still waiting. The unification of their, their spirits with their bodies. And that's what we're looking at. Okay? So that's how I see it. Steve, we're not going to finish this. We're going to go to next week. Go ahead. That's okay. Praise God. I, hey, listen, this is so exciting for me. So are you saying that I don't believe so. I believe that when I die, immediately my spirit goes to be with the Lord. I'm not in soul sleep. Okay. Now, what I said on the other side was that there is, you know, people debate that because of the, the concept of, you know, where do we go and all that kind of stuff. And that is the concept on the other side of theory of relativity and time, uh, quantum physics and, and, and all this kind of stuff. That there is a potential on the other side where there is no time, where time shall be no more con concept, okay? Is that the reality is when you die, you and David, thousands of years ago, right, are being risen up at the exact same point. Now, from our concept of history and our concept of time, that doesn't make any sense at all. Okay? My concept of time, here's what I believe. When I die, I'm with the Lord. And I'm waiting the unification of my body, which will come on the day that he comes back and, 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 and captures the church up to be with him. Okay? What happens on the other side, in heaven's side of the concept of time, we'll figure that out later. I believe so, <clears throat> and we haven't gotten there yet, okay, but yes, very clearly, it's going to be, what are we told here? It's going to be with the voice of the archangel, it's going to be with a loud shout, people are going to be raised up all over the place, I don't think it's going to be this disappearing act, I think we're going to be caught up to meet him in the, in the clouds. In fact, let's go on, because we talk about the nature of the rapture, right, and the word is harpoxo, okay, which means to seize or pluck up, which is really exciting here, and and um, we'll, we'll kind of end with this one. I, I know the time is, is here, and so we'll, we'll figure out we're going to have a good ending point, but this isn't it. Matthew 13 is, is, a, is a parable that you all know, and it talks about the sower and the seed. And remember how the sower goes out and he sows the seed, and some of it goes upon the hard soil, and the birds of the ear, they come down and they do what? They snatch it. They don't woo the seed. They don't say, okay, seed, come here, and the seed all of a sudden goes... Rather, the birds harpazo the seed. They go down and they pluck it. They snatch the seed. In John 10, verse 11 to 13, and you can read all these later, okay? 27 to 30, Jesus talks about the hireling, and he talks about the good shepherd. And he talks about the hireling, how the hireling flees in the, when, when, the, when the wolves come or when the, when the, the, the enemy comes, right? Because he's only being paid, and he's not going to give his life for him. So he flees. And when he flees, we're told that the wolf comes in and he plucks up. He snatches the sheep. And then in verses 27 to 30, Jesus says, But I'm the good shepherd. And no one is going to be able to harpazo you out of my hand. 
no one's going to be able to harpazo out of my father's hands. And the idea is this violent plucking, this snatching, this taking away. And then finally, in Acts 8, we read the same word when Philip is witnessing the eunuch, and the eunuch says, well, here's a great big body of water. What prevents me from being baptized? He says, nothing. They go in, and they baptize him. As they're coming back up, the, the Spirit of the Lord harpazos Philip so that the eunuch sees him no more. So he's snatched up and taken away in a manner that the eunuch sees him no more. So, to go back to your question then, Steve, will the world see it? The world will know that something happened. They will see us being taken up to meet Christ in the clouds. But after that, boop, we go away. That's when the strong delusion comes, which we're not there yet. But anyways, when the strong delusion comes, they'll explain it away. Okay? And people will believe the lie. It's an amazing thing. But the nature of the rapture, quote-unquote, and understand the word rapture is not a biblical word. It's from the Latin rapturo, okay? But it's the, the, it's the word that is used, the, the Latin word, rapturo, which is used to explain this Greek word, harpazo. So if you would, biblically, we could talk about the harpazo of the church. Okay? It would make a lot of people feel better when they say, rapture is not even in the Bible. You're right. So let's use the word harpazo, okay? So we're going to talk about the harpazo of the church. Anyways, but, and then when people say, what? Say, well, at least it's a biblical term. So, um, and I think it's kind of nice, you know, with the harps and everything. It just kind of sounds angelic, doesn't it? Anyways, so, the timing of the rapture. Well, what do we know about the timing of the rapture? Okay? It's when they're going to say what? Peace and safety. Now, one thing we saw in the Old Testament, and again, we've got to apply it coming through, for the most part, prophecy is always from the perspective of who? The Jews. Of Israel. Jerusalem. And so, this could be the whole world saying peace and safety, but I believe it's probably the Jews. It's when, when Israel is declaring that there's peace and safety. When they think that peace and safety is coming, we find out that there's going to be this pouring out. And we're also told that this harpazo, this rapture, raptoro, is going to happen before the wrath of God is revealed. Now this is important. Okay? These are all indicators that we're going to look at when we get to the book of Revelation. And because you have to ask yourself, when is the wrath of God revealed? Is it the seal judgments? Is it the trumpet judgments? Or is it the bowls of God's wrath? Anyways. We'll, uh, we'll leave that there. You can kind of ponder over that one, right? But it's before the wrath of God. And then we'll, um, we'll come back to 2 Thessalonians 2. Clearly the Lord wants me to spend more time on that, on that chapter rather than uh, ignoring it. So blind your eyes and pretend you don't see any of this. And uh, we'll, we'll come back and, and, and make that bigger. Now, as you look at the cultural landscape, the cultural and spiritual landscape of our world, the question is, what end-time indicators do you see today? As we went through those, those um, attributes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, what would you have to say to yourself? Are we looking more and more like it? Yes, that's exactly right. Liz? Um, you didn't explain the last one, which I've always been really curious about, the one that said the form of godliness, but denying its power. Yeah. Um, what do you think Oh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3? Yeah. Okay, sorry. I was, I was going through the Thessalonians passages and, and it wasn't clicking to me. Okay. Um, 
becoming a form of godliness. Well, think about it. That they, for all intents and purposes, will look like what? Church people. Christians. They're, or, not even Christians, but just godly people. We don't know what the, the major religion will be. But, in a sense, they will look like good people. Righteous people. Moral people is probably a good term. They'll have a form of morality, a form of godliness. Okay? So many times we think of, again, all these words in the form of our understanding of it. So when we think of godliness, we think clearly followers of Jesus Christ. Not necessarily the case. Probably, possibly, but not necessarily. But they're going to look like godly individuals. Think about it. There are a lot of people, politicians, pick on politicians, right? They're easy to pick on. They're out in the forefront. Okay? That are out there and they're declaring what? Allegiance to God. God. And I gave you already, a, um, earlier, when I talked about the homosexuality, how people can reveal themselves, show themselves to be godly individuals supporting homosexuality. Because they're, they're worshiping the Creator God who has made each one of us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And God made me this way. I read earlier this week a message by, um, I think she was Anglican. The Anglicans have female priests now, right? That's who it was, right? Supporting abortion and how abortion is the blessing. And it's you and I who are against abortion that are the ones who are actually withholding the blessings of God. And that abortion is a blessing of God, that God has brought this technology as a blessing to us. It's an amazing, it was her message. And she had everybody, this is the mantra, at the end of her message, she had them all say together, abortion is a blessing. Abortion is a blessing. Her church, she was inculcating it. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where you have ministers of the devil in, behind the pulpits, pretending to be ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Folks, that's just, that's, that is just the tip of the iceberg. It's amazing the things that are going on. It, don't waste your time really reading all this stuff on the internet. But it's amazing as I look for just opinions that are out there on certain things as I'm, I'm preparing these messages. The thought processes that are out there, people declaring themselves to be prophets and how God gave them the word and this is how it's going to be. And whew, it is just out there. And so I want to protect myself from doing that. That's why I'm, you know, with some of these things, I can, I can share you with you my thought processes and my musings, but they're meaningless. It's the word of God that's true. And that will not change. And so, they'll have a form of God. It's a great question. But denying the power. But denying the power of it. Okay? Think about it. Even in today, don't even put it out 20 years from now. Who knows what it'll look like then. But even today, there are Christians who deny the power of prayer, who deny the miraculous workings of God, you know, who look at you like you're lame because you want to give glory to God for doing the work in your life, you know, that, that's, that's entirely it. And so these moral people are going to be there and they're going to claim God but it's all done by whose power? And the thing that i got to challenge myself is with that is how many times do I ask God's assistance but then I take the glory for it? We profess to be godly but we deny the power thereof. And God doesn't... I mean, I understand we're not maybe fully there but it's it's... 
intricately, judge not lest you be judged with what judgment you judge others, it should be measured unto you. And so, you know, how you're going to take the measuring stick and put it to somebody else, apply it to yourself. It's okay. If you find, if God reveals more sin in you, it's a good thing, because then you can confess it and hopefully become more like Christ. Don't be afraid to, to ask yourself if the sin that you see in others is maybe laying dormant in you. Or un, 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 unannounced in you. And so, I think that's what it is, Liz. It's just, they have this form. It has the appearance. But in the, the, the end of it, they don't believe in the power of God. They're not, they don't believe in the resurrection power. When, when, when Paul talked about that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, they don't believe in that power. It's all about themselves. And it's all about the show. Think about it. If you had a presidential camp candidate stand up, and they, they stood up and, and they totally denied any belief in God. Now forget Jesus for a moment. We're already past that point, right? But, but they were an um, anti-God individual. Do you think that they'd be elected? Yes. No, I don't think so. I, I really don't. Nowadays, they would. Nowadays? No, I, I think that most Americans still want somebody who professes a belief in God. Not the God of the Bible, but a God. It's the God who lets them do whatever they want to do and validates their position. The, 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 that's yeah. the difference. Yeah, not the true God. Yeah, right now, maybe not, but I think... Yeah, oh, yeah, in the days ahead, yeah. But I think that there will always be this term that we put toward God. And we'll, we'll always redefine God according to our image. Um, Michael Card has a song that says, We've made you in our image so our faith is idolatry. It's an incredible line. You know, to, to think about you know, our worship of God. You know, and when we pick on others, to, to, to ask ourselves, do we do that? Do we make God in our image? You know, how, how we want him to look, we put him in our little box. And so our faith becomes then idolatry. So, good questions. Okay? Um, so, as we look at that cultural and spiritual landscape of the world, what end time indicators do we see? Tons of them. But even more importantly now, using that judgment stick to myself, as I look to the cultural and spiritual landscape of my life, or your life, what indicators are revealed? Hopefully it's different than what I see in the world. If it's not, I've got to ask myself, is there a need for repentance? If the same indicators, 2 Timothy chapter 3, about being a lover of self, and a lover of money, and about being haughty and, 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 and high-minded and stubborn, and all these things, if these are indicators that are describing my life, I've got some confession to do. I've got some repentance to go through. Some changing the way I think. Are you ready to meet the Lord? What if he came today? Wouldn't it be awesome if today, what a day, that Jesus comes in a cloud and we're all taken up to be with him? Are you ready to meet him? Would you be a part of those who were caught up to meet him in the air? If not, today's the day of salvation. If so, will you hear the well done, my good and faithful servant? That's what I'm yearning to hear. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the mystery that you have proclaimed. And that you knew before the foundations of the world were laid. That Christ would come. He would die for us. He would pay for the penalty of our sins. That your chosen people, the Israelites, the Jews, would reject him and you would open up 
this beautiful gospel to we Gentiles. Lord, I'm grateful for your grace. Lord, I understand that I am what a Jew ought to be today. That you are the God of the heavens and the God of the earth. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that Jesus came as a Jew. And that I am supposed to to worship you built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Thank you, Lord, for breaking down the middle wall partition. Lord, I thank you as well for the promise of your coming. I thank you that there is that hope that is still there, that confidence that, that the world, though as decadent as becoming, it, it is not the end. But rather there is the restoration, there is the reconciliation that will happen. God, I pray for a revival in this land. I pray that your day is still not to come, but that we see thousands and millions of souls saved and, and, and joined to the church. And yet, Lord, I know that one day it will be the day of your return. And there will be many people that are here who have rejected the truth. And they will walk through the tribulation, the trial, the wrath. God, I pray that your, your blood, the power of your blood would be mighty. The power of your grace would be strong. I pray that the boldness of your children would be great. And Lord, I pray that you begin that now. Help us, Lord, to, to go forth with the good news of salvation to encourage others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.